Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. After I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, if you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. Our reading is from Genesis chapter 22, and we'll start in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Nathan, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, I'd love to do that after the service today. Uh, We're so glad that you're here. (coughs) Excuse me. So I'm going to tell you two uh, scenarios, and they don't seem like they are related, but just stick with me for a minute. Uh, So I grew up in uh, the suburbs outside of Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, there are all these railroad lines that cross through uh, Birmingham. And our house wasn't particularly close to any of them, but late at night, if the conditions outside were just right and you were awake at just the right time, you could hear this sound of a distant train horn um, through the night. So then, a couple weeks ago, uh, Amanda and I were driving back from Alabama to Vermont, and just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, we stopped uh, for dinner at a Chick-fil-A to wait out a storm. And while we were at this Chick-fil-A, just outside of Knoxville, uh, the storm was coming through, and a bolt of lightning hit just outside of the restaurant. And then immediately, a clap of thunder hit, and it shook the building. And uh, so much that, like, people screamed uh, in terror at what was going on. Now, we are fine, but uh, when we read the Old Testament, there are echoes of the promised Messiah on every single page of the Old Testament. And some of them are like that train horn from my childhood that you can hear way off in the distance, and maybe you can convince yourself it's not really even there, it's just in your head. And then there are other times when we read the Old Testament that the, the claps of thunder about the Messiah rattle us to our very core. And so when we come to Genesis 22, uh, it is core rattling thunder about the Messiah. It is completely unmistakable uh, what God is doing and uh, where he is pointing us uh, to. 
Uh, And on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we can't help but read the story and think about Jesus. Uh, But I want us to do our due diligence in this passage to look and see what God is doing to the original audience on that side of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, And we're going to think about this uh, life of Abraham as we wrap up uh, this series on Abraham uh, as we look here at Genesis 22, 1 through 19. And you may be thinking, uh, Abraham isn't dead in Genesis 22. Uh, And you're right. So the story after Genesis 2 kind of focuses on Isaac. So Abraham will still be around for a few chapters. But this is really uh, the end of his story. And so let's consider uh, all the things. Maybe not all the things. We'll be here all day if uh, we considered all the things. I think I could have preached about uh, five sermons out of this passage. Uh, But I'll just settle for one really long one. So uh, get comfortable. We got you a new chair, so it shouldn't be too bad. All right, so you know, if you know me, if you listen to me before, you know I like to know, uh, I like to let you know where we're headed in this passage. So I'm going to walk through Genesis 22, and I'm going to provide commentary as I go along. Uh, and then along the way, there will be three points. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, let you in on those points. If you're keeping notes, you can keep track with me. So those points are as follows. Number one, expect God to test you. Number two, expect God to keep his promises. And number three, expect God to provide. So that's where we're going. Uh, So let's go ahead and jump in. First one says, after these things. So that begs the question, what things are we talking about? And I think the answer is a simple one. After all these things in Abraham's life from Genesis 12 until this point. So when we get to uh, Genesis 22, Abraham is around 120 years old. He's walked with the Lord now for 45 years. 45 years ago, God came to a man named Abram and called him to pick up his life and move away from his paganism to leave his family and go to a land that God would show him. And God would bless him and make him a blessing to all the nations on earth. And God would give him a good land and he would give him offspring and all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And so we read that Abraham packed up and went. And over the course of 45 years, in these 11 chapters in Genesis, we see Abraham's faith in God grow and expand. There are multiple times, though, in his life when the fear of man overtakes him and he throws his wife Sarah to the wolves in order to save himself. When his nephew Lot robs him of the good land, we see Abraham rely on God and trust in his promises. And when Lot gets himself in trouble, Abraham courageously trusts God and rescues him from the evil kings of the land. There are dark nights in Abraham's soul when he questions if God will really keep his promises or if one of the slaves in his household will end up getting everything that he has. And God in his kindness leads Abraham out into the night. He points his eyes to the heavens and he promises that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then God cuts a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham sees God walk through uh, and declare his covenant rests solely on God. We witness the devastating choices that Abraham and Sarah make in regards to the promise of offspring and their slave Hagar. And yet God still keeps his promises. He comes to Abraham, he gives him the covenant of circumcision, circumcision he reiterates the promise. God shows up at Abraham's door and tells him he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And Abraham goes toe-to-toe with God and he mediates on behalf of the righteous. And God restores Abraham and Sarah's laughter in the birth of their son Isaac, whose name means laughter. And then we see Abraham going throughout the land. This is what we covered last week, making claims to it. He's making treaties with uh, the rulers of the land. And he's declaring the name of the Lord in that land. So for 45 years, Abraham has followed God. There have been good days, there have been bad days, but he has learned to trust God. He's become friends with God, and that's where we pick up in the story today. It continues, after these things, God tested Abraham. So I want to point out just two things. First, there are seven recorded visits that God has with Abraham over the course of this story. So in chapter 12, it says, the Lord said to Abram. Later in chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abram. Chapter 13, the Lord said to Abram. Chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Chapter 17, the Lord appeared to him. And chapter 18, the Lord appeared to Abram. Abraham. In your translation of the Bible, it should say, Uh, When it says Lord there, it should say capital L and then a littler capital O-R-D. And every time your translation of the Bible has that big capital L, little capital O-R-D, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. But when we come here to Genesis 22, it doesn't say that. It says God. The Hebrew word is Elohim. This is not the personal name of God. This far more remote and magisterial name of God is Elohim who creates the world out of nothing. And so why is it that Moses, who's writing Genesis, uses Elohim instead of Yahweh? I want to suggest to you that this is a greater test. This is the greatest test in Abraham's life. So Moses is trying to get your attention by using a different name. He's trying to show you the gravity of what is happening. He's saying, pay attention. This visit from God is different than all the rest. And furthermore, I would argue that this passage stands far and above other passages in the Old Testament and its importance in the greater story of the Bible. Second, we should not be surprised that God has come to test Abraham. Indeed, God always tests his people. The last 45 years of Abraham's life have been one test after the other. Some failed and some passed. And with these tests comes a greater understanding of God and who he is, a deeper friendship with God, a faith so secure in the goodness of God that Abraham willingly lays down his future as a burnt offering because God is enough. So that brings us to point number one, expect God to test you. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Listen to the words of James. Consider it great joy whenever you experience various trials. First, expect trials to come. He says, whenever, not if ever. Second, he says various trials. There will be small trials and there will be great trials. God expects us to have faith in him for the small things and faith in him for the great things. Often we're prone to one or the other. We believe, in, uh, we believe him in the big things and we overlook him in the small things or we believe that he can take care of the small things but he can't take care of the big things. 
or we trust him in the literal, the mundane things, but we don't trust him in the big things. But James says here that there will be various trials. And he's encouraging us to trust God in both. And why is it that we should consider it joy when we experience various trials? It's because the testing of our faith produces endurance. Life is not easy. Abraham was visited by God six times prior to Genesis 22, and God had to remind remind him of his promises over and over again. And when we go through trials and we put our faith in God, it produces in us an endurance. We gain the ability to walk on towards the promises of God. We grow closer to God and we continue to walk in him. And finally, what does James say endurance leads to? Completeness. When we put our faith in God, in our, in our testing, we learn that God is enough. Watchman Nee was a great 20th century church planner in China. And he said of this story, Isaac can be done without, God cannot. So let's continue to look at verse one. And God said to, Abraham, said to him, Abraham, here I am. He answered, take your son. He said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Thankfully, we are warned that this is a test. To hear such a command is, uh, it is shocking. It should be shocking. Isn't this God different from all the other gods of the land? Isn't it Moloch who requires that his worshipers sacrifice their children? Certainly not this God too. But Abraham doesn't know it's a test. This command of God would have been absolutely excruciating to him. The mere language itself is excruciating. Take your son, to be clear, your only son, because Ishmael has been sent away at this point. Isaac, just to be clear, he's the one of the promise that I've been promising you about whom you love, that aching parental love that that hurts deep inside, take that son and go to Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. A burnt offering, that's the worst one. I'll spare you the gory details, but it is absolutely brutal on the thing that's being sacrificed. And then the language should sound familiar. It's so similar to Abraham's original call in Genesis 12, to pick up and head to the land, I will show you. Once your feet are in motion, I'll tell you where you're going. 45 years ago, God came to Abraham and asked him to give up his past, to walk away from his family and everything he knew. And now he's asking Abraham to give up his future, the son he had so desperately wanted and longed for for years. And for what? The text is wildly silent on what Abraham was thinking. What did he think God was asking of him? What were his thoughts about God? We want answers. We won't get them. Not yet. We're left with the question, will Abraham trust when he doesn't understand? Look at verse 3. So Abraham got got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering, and he set out to go to the place God had told him about. Maybe the more absurd action in the story is that Abraham gets up early the next morning to do this unthinkable thing that God has asked him to do. God has asked him to act against any common sense, any natural affections, and his lifelong hope. And we read, so Abraham got up early the next morning to accomplish this task. 
Abraham has gotten no promise or reassurance from God, but he has, he has walked with God. He knows God. He trusts God. He knows that God is just. He knows that God is kind. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is the God of life. And so the story continues. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Can you imagine those three grueling days of travel? Just step away from the fact that you know how the story ends and think about it. Abraham had heard from God to go and sacrifice his child. We're not privy to what those conversations were those three days. We don't know if Abraham was downtrodden. We don't know if Abraham was trying to play it cool. We don't know what they talked about. What did he tell Isaac when the four of them lay down at night? Did he listen as the other three fell into sleep, their breath going into snores, and lay there and look at the night sky? And he remembering that night that God came to him and took him outside and said, Abraham, it's not Eliezer, you're going to have a son. The anguish he must have felt. God, don't do it. Don't take him. You promised. For decades, you promised. Sarah lost her laughter. You restored it. God, you listened to me about Sodom and Gomorrah. Come again. Let's talk about it. Don't require this. Don't take his life. God, take my life. I'm old. Have Isaac kill me. And the silence of night is greeted not by the voice of God, but by the dawn of a new day. Another day to get up and journey on to the mountain that God would reveal. In verse 4, On the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we will come back to you. And now we get a glimpse into Abraham's faith in God. Abraham so believes in the promises of God that it will be through Isaac that all the families of the earth will be blessed that he reasons God is going to do a miracle. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your seed will be called through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. Abraham had been given no promise since Genesis 22, verse 1. He hasn't read the ending. And yet, he believes God to be the God of promises. He leaves the donkey and his two servants, and he looks those two men in the eyes, and he says, stay here, both of us. We'll be back. This leads us to our second point. Expect God to keep his promises. Brothers and sisters, how is your faith in God? Do you trust in the goodness of our promise-keeping God in such a way that your faith says go when it doesn't make any human sense? Is your walk so intimate with the Father that when your mind can't comprehend what he's up to, your faith will step out in utter belief? Abraham had followed God for 45 years. He knew that God was going to keep his promises. He remembered days, weeks, even years in those 45 years when his faith wasn't strong, but God still remained faithful. He remembered that God still kept his promises. 
It should be no surprise to us that Abraham believed God to keep his promises because it should be no surprise to us that God will keep his promises. So Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Abraham forms a doctrine of resurrection before we're ever aware in the, in the biblical narrative that that's something that God does. Why? Why does he trust this is something God can do? Because he's already seen it in his own life. He and Sarah were as good as dead, and yet Isaac was born. Sarah's womb was more like a grave, and yet God filled it with laughter. And so he steps out toward Moriah, and he believes that God will still come through on his promise. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Abraham straps the wood for the burnt offering on the back of his one and only son, and Isaac stands condemned. The journey goes on in what seems like silence, the wood on the back of the sacrifice, the instruments of death, and the hands of the father. And then the silence is broken. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac is about 20 in this passage. He's looking around, and he sees there's nothing to sacrifice. And the Hebrew here points to the tender affection Abraham and Isaac have for each other. Isaac to Abraham, my father. You can almost picture Abraham's response as he stills himself on the climb, turning to Isaac, who very well is holding on to his father's arm as they climb this mountain. And Abraham says, I'm right here. And the question breaks the silence. Where is the lamb? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. The Zondervan Bible commentary says that Abraham's words are not merely an attempt to calm the curious Isaac, but are a settled expression of his trust in God. Isaac is trusting Abraham. He's been led to do nothing else but trust his father. Abraham is fully trusting God. He has no idea what God is about to do. He cannot fully answer Isaac because he doesn't know what God is up to. But 45 years of God's provision has led him to believe that God will no less be a provider today. In many ways, his God himself will provide as a prophecy of what will take place. But as it is spoken, it is no doubt a prayer. God, please provide. Look at verse 9. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. Don't sleep on verses 9 and 10. Isaac is maybe 20. Abraham is 120. Abraham cannot bind Isaac and put him on the altar unless Isaac lets him. Isaac is stronger and faster. He could take his old man in a second. Isaac has decided to obey his father regardless of the cost. Abraham has decided to obey God regardless of the cost. Why? Because for 20 years, Abraham has taught Isaac what it means to have faith in God. He has rehearsed the story of God to him over and over again. 
Abraham's faith in God is alive and well in Isaac. And so they both live out their faith. Abraham builds an altar. He binds Isaac. They shimmy him up on top of the altar, and Abraham grabs his knife. James 2, 21 through 24 says this, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Abraham believed God. He got up and set out for Moriah. It's in this moment, though, when Abraham grasps the knife and, shaky as his hand may be, lifts it above Isaac. It is in this moment that both Abraham and Isaac put their faith in action. They believe, regardless of what happens, that God will keep his promises. And somehow they will meet their servants at the bottom of the mountain later that night. Our pastor back in Alabama, his name is Mac Brunson, and he says this of Isaac, that this is Isaac's highest moment. At no other point in Isaac's life does he display faith and obedience like he does in this one. So that's just a little teaser of what's to come. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he replied, here I am. Abraham and Isaac are in a moment of crisis. Isaac is a knife drop away from death, and who shows up? The angel of the Lord. And who do we know the angel of the Lord to be? Jesus. He shows up when there is a crisis. Verse 12, then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And in one moment from the voice of God rained down joy on that mountain like fire rained down on Mount Carmel with Elijah. It was a test. Abraham didn't have to go through with it. In the moment of crisis, the angel of the Lord shows up and provides a substitute sacrifice. There's a ram caught in the thicket. And God tells Abraham that now he knows he fears him. Paul Borgman describes fear of God like this. Such trust and provision as to do the right thing for only the doing's sake with no promise. God had asked Abraham for 45 years or 45 years ago to leave his family, everything that he knew in order to be a blessing for the world. And on this day, he had asked him to give up his future And Abraham willingly pursued righteousness and justice by fearing God and doing what he had asked him to do. And then as quick as he could, Abraham loosened Isaac and instead offered the ram caught in the thicket to God. Verse 14, and Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. In complete joy and worship, Abraham names the place Yahweh Yara, the Lord will provide. Surely Abraham had begged God not to do this. When Isaac asked where the lamb was, Abraham prophesied in the hope that God would provide when they got there. And here he has. And so when we see that the God who tests is also, well, so we see that the God who tests is also the God who provides, which is our third point. Expect God to provide. 
And God had called Abraham to leave Ur and go to the land he would show him. And God provided the land. Sarah was barren and couldn't have a child, but God provided Isaac. Abraham was called to give up Isaac, but God provided the lamb. Psalm 84, 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Matthew 7, 9 through 11 says, Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to, good give, give, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God delights in providing for his children. The psalmist says that he does not withhold the good. Jesus said in Matthew that our Father in heaven gives good things to those who ask. Expect God to provide. Look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. And so God calls to Abraham again. As never done before, God swears by his own name that because Abraham has passed the test, he will keep the promises that he's made to Abraham. Up until this point, the promises God has made Abraham have been kept simply out of divine favor towards Abraham. But now God swears by his own name that he will keep them because of Abraham's faithfulness to him. In other words, God and Abraham have become partners. God is not simply acting out of favor, but he's acting on behalf of Abraham who has proven his faithfulness to God through his obedience. And because of Abraham's obedience, now God, by his own name, will keep all the promises. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. In verse 19, Abraham went back to his young men, and they got up, and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. And just like that, Abraham's faith produced endurance. He and Isaac and their two servants get up and together they go home. But let's turn back to Isaac's question to Abraham. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? It's that not the defining question of the entire story of the Old Testament. We can hear the question cry out from the garden. When Adam and Eve decided that the fruit of the tree in the middle of, middle of the garden was good for food and delightful to look at it, they ate it, and with that choice to break the command of God, sin entered the world. Sin vandalizes in two ways. First, it vandalizes relationally between us and God and between us and each other. Secondly, sin vandalizes the, the whole environment. Evil persists in the land because of our, yeah, evil persists in the land because of sin. God had warned Adam that when he ate of the fruit, he would die. In other words, Adam, you cannot sin and live. 
To sin against a holy God requires that he rid the world of us. And so God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, and they expect him to kill them, to rid the garden of him, because they have allowed sin to vandalize this good thing that God has created. But instead, God comes to them with the gospel. You will not die today. One is coming who will atone and purify. And instead of killing Adam and Eve, God kills a lamb and he clothes the man and the woman with the skins of the sacrifice. And every sin we see from there on out through the Old Testament cries out in the words of Isaac, where is the lamb? And so God in his justice and grace gave the nation of Israel the sacrificial system Each and every sinner deserves death, but God allowed a substitute in the animal. And that animal would literally die the symbolic death each Israelite deserved. The lamb would be the atonement, the cover over death. But there's a second part, the sacrifice as well, the purification. In the purification, the the priest would take the blood and he would go around the tabernacle and later the temple and he would sprinkle the tabernacle or the temple with the blood, symbolically cleansing the land, purifying the land that had been vandalized by sin and evil. And so for thousands of years, Israel sacrificed lambs to atone and purify. But every sin continued to cry out, where is the lamb? And the prophet Isaiah describes the state of the sacrificial system and the people's hearts. I didn't put this on uh, a slide because I'm going to read a lot. So you can turn there if you would like to. Isaiah 1. Beginning in verse 2. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. Your land is desolate, verse 7. Your cities burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation, like a place demolished by foreigners. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Do you see it? 
The people were offering sacrifices, but they had become meaningless. There was no righteousness in the land. There was no righteousness in their hearts. And instead, their sins cried out, where is the lamb? And Isaiah turns to the gospel, look down at verse 18. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Where is the lamb? Isaiah points our eyes in his direction. Flip over to chapter 53. Beginning with verse 1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, the suffering servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he, bore, he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was a rich man, but he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because, the, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels, Where is the lamb? Isaiah prophesied that he was coming. And the Old Testament continues to cry out, where is the lamb? And the Old Testament closes. And for 400 years, God does not speak to his people. And the question rings out for 400 years in the silence, where is the lamb? And there, in the first chapter of John, John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan, and he looks up, and he sees Jesus walking to him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Lamb of God lived a sinless life. And the father, just like Abraham, straps the wood to the back of his son, and Jesus takes up his cross on the mountain, 
And surely Jesus remembers on that, being on that mountain with Abraham and Isaac as the angel of the Lord, providing a substitute for Isaac. But this time, the son puts himself on the altar as the atoning sacrifice. And the father declares that he will not rid the world of his people, but the lamb of God will atone for the sins of many. And the blood of the lamb will be the purification to remove the evil from the land. And so Jesus, the lamb of God, had taken away the sins of the world. Continual sacrifice was no longer necessary. The author of Hebrews says in 9.26, But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. And just as Isaiah prophesied, The Lamb of God was cut off from the land of the living. But on the third day, just as Abraham had reasoned that God could bring Isaac back to life, God raised Jesus from the dead. And the Lamb of God who had been slain was raised to life as the roaring lion of Judah. Your sins have left you in a crisis Because you have broken the law of God, you deserve death. But there's another way. God, in his great mercy, sent to us Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here today and you have not called in the name of Jesus for salvation, I would invite you to do that. There'll be people in the back You can talk to or you can grab one of us after the service. And if you're here today and you have believed, I'm going to invite you after I pray to raise your voice and praise the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world through the shedding of his blood. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on Genesis, our hearts cry out, where is the lamb? Father, on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we know that the lamb is Jesus. Father, we praise you that like Abraham, you willingly offered up your son for the atonement of our sins. Father, we praise you that it wasn't us who ended up on the altar, but that it was Jesus, the substitutionary atonement of our sins. Father, we thank you for the shedding of his blood. that it gives us a right relationship with you. Father, we praise you that all of your promises find their yes in Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. That through the life of Abraham, you speak to us. That you are enough 
whatever it is that you ask of us, we can lay anything down because you are enough. Father, we pray that you would make that true in our hearts, that you would be enough. We pray that the testing of our faith would lead to endurance. And we would continue to walk towards your promises. It's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.